welcome to the Science is Gray podcast, a space where we explore the gray areas and intersections of science, ethics, and social justice. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate liberation activist, I believe social progress and justice depend on bringing science and ethics together for a holistic and nuanced approach to creating a compassionate and sustainable world for all beings. Today I'm about to share with you what I think is a very timely conversation I recorded a few months ago with Michelle Simon, a public health attorney, author, founder of the Plant-Based Foods Association, and a food policy expert with over 25 years experience in the plant-based food sector. In this episode, Michelle and I discuss the underbelly of the natural foods and plant-based foods movements and how issues of sexism, concentrated wealth, and ideologies like effective altruism are harming the movement. Now, I say this is timely because in the wake of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange collapse a few weeks ago and the CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, having been a huge proponent and advocate of effective altruism, a lot of people both in and out of animal advocacy spaces are finally talking about some of the flaws of this ideology. If you've heard about effective altruism and just want to know more or are curious about what impact different philosophies and approaches to changing the food system have, this is the episode for you. And really quickly before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. And if you'd like to support my work and help this podcast and information reach more people, I also just recently launched a Patreon account, and you can find the link for that in the show notes and on my website as well. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. I'm really excited to have you on and really looking forward to this conversation. We've talked and, and on LinkedIn and had some conversations in this area. Um, so, but for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, you are a powerhouse in the plant-based foods and policy world and have years of experience. I find, you know, everything you've done so inspiring. So if you would just share for people who aren't familiar a little bit about your background and your work and what you do. Sure. Happy to. Thanks for having me on, Serena. I'm, I'm excited for this conversation, too. So um, my training is in public health and law, and I've applied that training throughout my career by really advocating for healthier food systems, healthier food policies, with the idea that when you change the environment, that we live in day to day, policy really makes it easier for people to access healthy food. So think about, you know, when you go outside and all you can find is McDonald's and Burger King, well, there are policies that are responsible for that kind of food environment. And that's a very public health oriented concept. And that's something that I've applied through most of my career. Now, along the way, it turned out that politics also um, had a lot to do with how those policies are shaping our environment. And so I really developed a specialty over the years in shining a light on the politics of food, following in the footsteps of Marion Nassau, and really diving deep into the meat and dairy industries and how they shape our public policies in a way that really makes those products ubiquitous. And then um, over time, I kind of broadened my horizons to the entire uh, junk food industry, if you will, and 
have done a lot of work exposing various PR and lobbying tactics by companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, et cetera. And I wrote a book in 2006 exposing the those sorts of tactics. And then um, in the mid-teens, <laughs> I guess we call it, I um, realized there was uh, no trade association representing plant-based food companies. And at that time, the industry was really kind of taking off in a, in a way that it hadn't before. So I spent um, pretty much all of 2015 on my own, um, pulling together the right leadership to start from scratch, the Plant-Based Foods Association, which launched in 2016. And I successfully grew that organization um, over five years and left at the end of 2020. And since that time, I've really been kind of taking a, you know, a more analytical look, if you will, at what's going on in both the plant-based food sector and the vegan movement more broadly, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But essentially, I um, have carved out this niche for myself as an expert in, in the politics of food. And now I would say I'm turning my attention more towards the um, the movement at large and how we are um, treating people within it. And I've become very passionate a passionate advocate for women in particular in the movement and in natural foods. And um, sorry to say, it's not going very well <laughs> for our gender and um, any marginalized group really um, within either the vegan movement or the natural foods industry more broadly. So that's what awesome. I'm passionate about right now. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And sexism is one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot. So what are like from what you've been seeing and and the things you've you've experienced personally and been writing about how is sexism like really affecting the plant-based foods movement right now yeah where to begin <laughs> i know jumping um, right in <laughs> yeah that's okay no, um you know i like to separate how, how i think about it because i am unusual i think in that i kind of have one foot in two sectors, each sector, meaning the nonprofit sort of advocacy world, and then the for-profit, you know, um, corporate world. And the, while those are different, you know, environments to work in, <laughs> sadly, the issues are rather similar, and they basically boil down to women being marginalized. And, you know, it shows up somewhat differently. Um, but again, like the bottom line is kind of the same. So let's talk about the um talk about the corporate side first because i think you and i might go deeper into the nonprofit side but on the corporate side you know it's what's really heartbreaking is that i've had so many conversations you know with colleagues um and you know women who have just shown up in my you know linkedin direct message inbox um who see what i'm writing about and say yes this is happening to me and what's happening um a couple of things first of all we have you know pretty senior level women and some come cases founders of companies in natural foods and you know not all plant-based foods because I speak to women more broadly in natural foods but definitely a lot in the plant-based food sector that um, are being pushed out because they're just too smart <laughs> um, they you know, have lost control of companies that they founded to investors. And unfortunately, that can happen when, you know, you have to raise money to grow a food company. 
in this competitive environment and when you you know sell too many shares of your company you basically lose control and um so that means they can be pushed out fired you know you name it and then you know senior level women that one in one particular case she uh was gonna get fired right before her stock was vesting and <laughs> so they were trying to scoop out of a lot of money and you know thankfully she had enough um grounds to threaten to sue them and you know was able to come away from that with what they owed her, but still, you know, is devastated by that experience. So really what it boils down to is a lot of stories of trauma. And that's something I have experienced myself, workplace trauma, and it's just been really um, sad and uh, just powerful in a way to talk to so many women that have had some experiences. You know, when you get down to like even, you know, mid-level, I can think of a woman just recently who I helped uh she was in a situation where she was experiencing some mental health challenges had asked for you know a legally um you know companies are legally required to grant uh medical leave you know under certain circumstances so the point is she was taking coming back from a approved leave for mm -hmm. mental health issues okay depression anxiety literally the day she came back they put her on a performance improvement plan, a PIP, which is, you know, pretty much the death knell everyone knows. <laughs> you don't come back from a PIP. And um, and this was a, a not a vegan company, but, you know, a natural food company. And uh, so then I just kind of, you know, coached her through the next few weeks where she was dealing with all this BS from her boss. And of course, you know, what they do is they make the uh, performance impossible and she needed accommodations because she was having anxiety and they didn't come I mean, they were out like breaking the law by the way um because the ada requires you know certain accommodation that you um grant accommodation requests so anyway the upshot was of course she got fired after 30 days and they wanted her to sign some stupid severance agreement and she said no i'm not signing it i'm just walking away and you know, she came from another um, natural food company that I won't name, but everyone's heard of it. And um, she had been through a, a difficult situation in that company. And so here now she's, you know, two really bad experiences in natural foods. And is because you can imagine pretty much done with the industry. And so it's really, I call it kind of this trail of devastation of super smart, you know, passionate women um, who are accomplished or, you know, even even whether they're early in their careers, mid-level, senior, uh, I think it's happening more to senior level women because, you know, men really just can't handle smart, accomplished women. I mean, that's just a sad reality, um, you know, and the natural food industry is basically run by white men. And, uh, yeah, I could go on and on with stories, but that's basically the, you know, mm -hmm. the pattern um, in the natural food side. So, you know, on the nonprofit side, it shows up a bit differently, but the pattern is, you know, pretty similar, right? Again, thinking about a few senior women I know who um, got pushed out, uh, have walked away from the industry, you know, from the sector. And I'm thinking of one woman in particular who... I just adore, I work closely with her and 
you know, she's like, I'm done. And that means that the animals that she used to advocate on behalf of them don't have her, um, you know, wisdom and experience. And so, you know, it just creates this churning effect where women are just kind of spit out and um, some of them leave the sector altogether and others, if they stay, they are probably being very quiet and because they're scared. And, you know, and I will say is that, you know, accomplished woman myself over 50, you know, you like, you would think that the older you get, the more experienced you are, the easier it is to find work. And of course, that's not true in a society that um, is extremely ageist. And so when you combine sexism and ageism and, you know, God knows it's harder for uh, women of color, it can be really rough. So, you know, it's just, um, you know, and then that's sort of the, on the individual level, but I think we should talk also about what it looks like in the movement on a broader sort of, you know, um, strategic level, I might mm -hmm. say, right? So individually, women are just getting screwed over left and right. And that's horrible, obviously, for many reasons. But it also has larger impacts on uh, both the, you know, for-profit mm -hmm. sector and the nonprofit sector. Well, that's that's kind of what I'm really curious to hear, too, is, you know, when, when people have conversations, when we in the vegan or plant-based or animal rights spaces have conversations about strategy or effective activism or, you know, measuring the effects of our advocacy or, you know, any of these things, I think we can't ignore the roles that these other biases, sexism, racism, and, you know, play in shaping the outcomes of those discussions, shaping what we determine is effective, shaping, you know, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and, and how you think these things are, you know, influencing the information people are receiving about what's effective. Sure. I mean, you know, what we have is, a concentration of power right so i mean it's basically like the vegan cartel that runs really the entire movement and um i don't think i ever called it that before so thank you for inspiring me <laughs> okay. i think we should really start using that word to describe what's going on because it really boils down to a handful of funders you know in partnership or in you know, cahoots with a pretty small handful of organizations that then collectively, you know, all like 10 of them, you know, between the funders and the organizations, it's an extremely ridiculously small number of, you know, people that are dictating the strategy for an entire extremely complex, you know, diverse movement. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it's reflective, of course, of our broader society where we have a few white men running everything. But, um, you know, it, it's extremely troubling because what what that means is when you have so much concentrated power, there is really only, I can think of maybe two strategies that, you know, these uh, powers that be, the cartel has decided is the way to go, mm -hmm. right? And if you are not in lockstep, with like those, you know, two or three, maybe at the most <laughs> strategies, you know, you're not getting funded. You're being, you're getting the peanuts that you can scrape together from other funders. 
right? And so it raises Stuart's question. And of course, there is no evidence. So we should talk about that. Like, what are the strategies? And is there evidence to support their effectiveness, right? If it worked, you know, of course, that's what they think. They think, well, these are the most effective strategies because we men have decided that that is so. Um, unfortunately, they don't have a shred of evidence to support that position. Yeah, no, I the evidence thing is so interesting. And I know, like, my experience is a lot more on the, you know, animal rights side of things. But I watched the same people who were promoting, like, welfare reform policies, you know, bigger cages, things like that, years ago. And they've now shifted to something else and then claimed, like, vegan activism just as a whole or whatever or these various things didn't work and i'm like you you did one thing and now you've switched into something else and you're saying or or because you went out and threw some fake blood on yourself and did some protest and then it's like oh i tried that it didn't work and i'm like right. well that's that's not the activism i'm referring to that's not there's like a million other things and now you're just blanketly saying we know what's best now and effective and right you know this one thing but they're acting like it's everything right yeah i so my take on that or my version of that is um this idea that oh well the movement tried to educate people for years mm -hmm. and, you know i was doing that early on in my career too and you know i that's all i kind of knew what to do um and so the the argument goes, well, we tried educating people for decades and that didn't work. And, and so from a public health standpoint, actually, um, it turns out that that was never an effective strategy, right? Because of what I was saying earlier about how people's food choices are very much shaped by their environment. Mm -hmm. And so we know that whatever the behavior is that we want to change, where there is like this monster industry, you know, telling you every single day, go do the bad thing. If you want someone to do the good thing, like education cannot possibly compete with the likes of, you know, McDonald's dollar menu advertising, right? So, so to say, oh, yeah, we were wrong about this strategy. Well, you, that was a failed strategy to begin with, right? And then, you know, but to your point also, it's like, well, why should we believe you now, <laughs> right? It's like, okay, yeah, well, why, you know, if you had it wrong before, why, you know, what's the evidence that you have it right now? And, you know, really um, what it comes down to is expedience, right? So it's like, okay, well, maybe funders got bored with throwing fake blood. That was probably not a good strategy. Um, and, you know, education was never going to work anyway. So now we're just going to turn towards this new idea, glom on to, um, and we can get to the heart of this now, I assume um, you want yeah. to. Yeah. So this phrase effective altruism is really fascinating to me from a historical standpoint, because like I've been in the movement over 20 years and I can safely say that I never heard of it until maybe about 10 years or so ago. And that alone, like to me, raises some questions and should set up alarm bells for anyone, right? It's like, you know, it's not to say that new ideas or movements don't come along, but to bank so much on this sort of, you know, what's being positioned as a scientific concept when it really just was made up fairly recently and never was meant to apply to animal welfare, just that the animal welfare opportunists, the cartel, have sort of glommed onto it to say, oh, here's a concept that 
nicely fits within our world. And, oh, there's lots of people with money in it. Go figure. Um, what a coincidence. <laughs> so, you know, whereas I come from like an academic background is do you like that's why you know you focus on science I know a lot in this podcast and I'm looking at this like well my theory of change is based in many many decades of you know sound public health research uh-huh. you know and not to mention policy change and again the, you know the intersection of public health and policy and I'm not seeing that kind of by you know you're coming from a scientific background and what the hell is effective altruism but a couple of white guys who just made up this idea, right? Like right. to me, that's not a that's not grounded in anything. Well, and I'm gonna share the definition for people listening who might not know too, because it sounds good at face value, right? Like oh, effective yeah. altruism is the definition is it's about answering one question: How can we use our resources to help others the most? We use evidence and careful analysis to find the very best causes to work on. Like at face value, it's <laughs> like. That sounds great. Let's use evidence to figure out what's most effective and help the most people or the most animals or, you know. Right. So how, right. where does it go off the rails? Yeah, it goes off the rails when it's too vague. And it's um, it operates in, it makes so many assumptions, right, that it's possible to, like, pretend we're not. And it's, it's almost like, they are living in some other on some other planet sometimes when I see the reasoning behind it, you know, because they pretend that capitalism doesn't exist, you know, they pretend that all of the sort of just economics, you know, structures that we all operate under every day don't really exist. And so it's like it's trying to really um it's very reductionist, I think, in its thinking and analysis. And it leaves out the entire political landscape that, you know, is quite relevant and is really um, undergirds everything that we do and that we are constrained by and that we're trying to fix. So that's um, another big part of the problem for me. It's like, well, it sounds great, but, you know, who's doing and whoever is doing the analysis, of course, I mean, which is true of any scientific endeavor, admittedly, but there are at least some sort of checks and balances and, you know, legitimate scientific endeavors to try and make sure that they're not being too biased or what have you. Whereas this just, people are just making this shit up, you know? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, my my biggest complaint is, yeah, it, effective altruism makes a lot of assumptions that are unquestioned. So one of the biggest assumptions in the animal welfare space is that you can quantify suffering and thus be able to compare like, you know, X number of animals in this factory farm versus 10 animals in bigger cages. Like they're making these weird assumptions of like, we can quantify this and and rank these and clearly define, you know, whose suffering is worse. And I'm sure the the space doing this with humans is, I think they're doing that too in terms of poverty or these other things. Yeah. And I think that is ridiculous, like right. that that we can, like that we can know the experience of another individual human or animal or you know and and be able to say like well more money should go towards this because their suffering is x amount worse if they have x number of inches more in their cage we'll reduce suffering by x amount like where are those numbers coming from like like how 
you know, yeah. it's all assumption based assumptions that aren't questioned at all. Right. right. Yeah, no, it is crazy making. And, you know, this whole quantification, like just that alone, as if the quantification is the only measure that matters, you know, and um, I remember, you know, this came up um, when I was working on the dietary guidelines and you know, a lot of the evidence was showing that red meat is the most harmful. I mean, we can debate whether that's true or whether, you know, animal rights people care about that. But there is this sort of concept that kind of drove me crazy at the time, which was, well, but we don't want to drive people to eat chicken, right? We don't want to drive people away from eating red meat to eating chicken because that will harm more animals, Right, because the number of chickens that need to be killed are higher than cows. I mean, and I was just like, I get it. Like, I care about animals too. It's definitely one of my big motivators. But from a policy and strategy standpoint, like, we have an opportunity here to make some headway with, you know, making people healthier. <laughs> you know, I mean, I thought that was part of the vegan movement. It was the one I signed up for. Mm -hmm. You know, so it also it sort of takes you know, other considerations off the table when all you're doing is adding up how many animals are getting killed. And and I mean, and how you even do that math, like you're saying, is so crazy. So, you know, strategically, it just um, leads us down these paths that really are head scratching. Um, and it's quite frustrating. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a campaign that I saw a couple of years ago. I don't think it exists anymore. But I think it was, it might have been related to that, but it was called One Step for Chick One Step for Chickens or One Step for Animals, something like that. <laughs> um, that was all about just getting people to cut out chicken from an ethical perspective. So this was not health or anything, which I think like if if you're if you have a campaign saying like here's the problems with red meat. You're not telling people what else to go eat. You're not telling them to go eat chicken. So I have no problem right. with a campaign like that. Right. Um, but so this this campaign was probably related or in a response, but it bothered me because it was very much an effective altruist approach where they were basically telling people almost literally to eat beef or other animals because... Yeah so many more chickens are killed to produce meat. So if you do anything, if you just take one step for animals, cut out, like just switch your chicken to something else. And I was like, you could say, don't eat chicken, but like, why are you actively telling people to go back yeah. to like eating beef or red right. meat or right. like- Which, Right, not to mention, yeah, the other impacts of that. Environmental health, health. Right. health. yeah, I mean, like- <laughs> ah! <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's why- Okay, so now reminding me, like, you know, again, when I started in the vegan movement, what made it so compelling was that it cut across, you know, mm -hmm. well, at least three issues. I mean, we left out labor, we shouldn't have, but I think, you know, there are some groups at least paying more attention to labor, but, you know, certainly, you know, health, environment, animals, and, you know, um, people in general. And so for effective altruism come along and basically say no and not only uh are we cutting out those other concerns um and focusing on animals but we're actually defining how we are caring about animals in a very narrow restricted way mm -hmm. and and so what that's saying is 
to everyone who cares about these other issues, yeah, we're not interested in collaborating with you. We don't care if, you know, you think it's healthier to eat chicken than meat. We don't want to talk to red meat. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, you know, in an in a era when, you know, diversity and inclusion is on everyone's minds, it's like the polar opposite. It's like the least inclusive, most reductionist, like, you know, cult, really, that you could create to advance, quote unquote, veganism. You're reminding me of another example of effective altruism that I read about. I believe, uh, I, I think it was in um, Peter Singer's book, not Animal Liberation, a more recent book, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was a book he wrote about effective altruism, like doing the most good or something. Mm-hmm. And there was this example in the book where there's like uh, a person works on Wall Street for like, the, a person has a choice. Like they could go, they, they want to make a difference in the world. So they could go work for a nonprofit or be an activist or, you know, X, Y and Z. Or they could go work on Wall Street for 10 years, make millions of dollars, you know, through capitalism and all this, and then donate that money. And the example in the book was basically like, you know, from an effective altruist perspective, that person would make so much more of a a difference (laughs) and be so much more helpful to the world working on Wall Street for, you know, 10 or 15 years, making all this money and then donating it rather than like doing something personally meaningful with their life. Oh my God, I'm gonna throw up. Yeah, that that pretty much does sum it up, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, never mind the fact that that person's going to be miserable all that time, you know, or maybe, you know, they might get into an accident and get disabled and might have to, you know, not and won't have that money. I mean, it's just like so many eventualities that could happen. And it, yeah, this idea of like dictating like they're they're like supporting the system that might be causing right. problems they're trying to right, fix right, with right. the money in the first place. That really totally. got me too. Right. And it's ignoring again the political environment that all of this operates in. It, it's 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 I feel like it's very um what's the word? Sort of it accepts the the economic system that we live in and is trying to just kind of tinker with it, right? Mm-hmm. As a, and it assumes, I mean, just the assumption that donating money makes a difference like that alone is so twisted you know if you look at there's so many analyses now that are questioning that it's just like this idea that we should you know be donating and i know that's a big thing in ea right like donating money and it's like well what if we fixed our political system instead you know i mean there really isn't much evidence and we've been you know at this philanthropy thing for quite a while now and how are things going, society? <laughs> you know, right. not very well. So it it very much not only accepts but supports and plays into the current highly destructive <laughs> economic system that has caused all of these problems in the first place. Right? I mean, that's to me the the weakest aspect of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and it it's like it ignores the the root issue of what is causing the things they're supposedly trying to fix, whether it's, you know, animal suffering and oppression or climate change or 
you know, lack of access to food and water. It, it like, it doesn't even ask the question of what's causing it. It just, right. like you said, assumes that throwing some money at it is going to fix it. Right, right. And it's a very um, kind of, of self-aggrandizing, like, well, we know we can study, you know, I, this um, sort of sheen of science that, you know, it wraps itself in a scientific flag, whatever the right metaphor is, um, it drives me crazy because that kind of gives it cover, right? It's like, oh, it sounds, again, and like you say, it sounds so great. Of course, who wouldn't want to study the most effective? But, you know, they're also taking data from many of the groups that benefit from, you know, the continued largesse. I mean, that's, you know, always going to be true to some extent when organizations are trying to prove their worthiness, but it's just, it's very insular, right? So you have like the same, again, you know, cult of a dozen people or so um, talking to each other in their echo chamber. And so it's like, oh, well, of course this is working because, you know, well, here are the three groups that only did this. So (laughs) here's our proof that this worked. And it's like, okay, well, did you try anything else? Oh, well, no, we don't have any funding to try anything else. So, you know what I mean? It's just, it's so like, yeah, insular. Yeah, it, it's really frustrating to me too. I mean, and this is particular to effect, to effective altruism, but also happens in other areas of science. But when it comes to the studies, framing is everything. And I feel like the the setup of what I've seen of effective altruism in you know, animal advocacy or the plant-based foods movement is that because, like you're saying, it's this cult of same people, they're asking the questions for their, you know, studies in ways that they can already predict what the outcome will be in support of the organizations that they more or less are already <laughs> in alignment with. Like, right. like I've, I have looked at some of the studies that have been published on effective you know vegan or animal rights advocacy and most of them it's like they wouldn't stand up to anything like i can like read them and pick so many holes and flaws and assumptions it's just like made up (laughs) like that's yeah 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 i mean you kind of wonder why are they even bothering you know why not just give the money and not even you know it's like it's again it's a very very self-serving, self-flattery, you know, kind of, that we can feel good about this and and justify this continued insular funding um, when, you know, there really is no basis for it. It almost, it just feels like a charade, you Mm -hmm. know, and it, and it almost, I don't know, it's insulting because like you and I can see right through it. And, you know, when it also means, what is the effect of all this? You know, we can, whine all day about oh well it means only a few people are getting funding it's not just that it's really to me i mean well it's first of all it's ineffective <laughs> so there's no evidence to say that any of these strategies are actually working so there's that but um, you know i go back and forth sometimes thinking well is that the more important thing or is the more important thing that like you know 99 percent of you know other strategies and more importantly people are being um, marginalized and again, you know, left to just pick up some crumbs. And a good example of that would be most of the vegan movement does not give a shit about labor. And I can't tell you how much it drives me crazy and that there are hardly 
any groups that you know will uh, advocate on behalf of of workers who are you know either in agricultural fields picking all of our vegetables or you know in the manufacturing plants. And recently, I I have been following and I wrote about Amy's Kitchen that you know has been um, accused of some very serious labor violations. And of course, Amy's is a lot of people's favorite organic, you know, vegetarian slash vegan food company. And yes, it's a bummer. And yes, it's disappointing. But we have to pay attention to this. And when I look around and say, well, who is shining a light on this? I only found one group, Food Empowerment Project, you know, because Lauren Anellis, thank God for her, has been, you know, a very vocal advocate for workers within the vegan movement. And yet she's not getting, you know, the millions of dollars that groups like the Good Food Institute are getting. And to me, it's like the perfect example. It's like, you know, what could be more important than the workers who are on the front lines of making your vegan frozen burrito animal rights activists who I know are relying on these, you know, <laughs> convenience foods um, and yet don't give a shit. In fact, they will even say things like, well, don't, you know, don't criticize these companies because, you know, we we want to support them. I mean, not to mention like the fact that many of these organizations are in bed with the actual <laughs> meat packing companies, right? Because they think, oh, well, Tyson's going to change the world, you know, by taking a whatever 2% stake in Beyond Meat, which of course they have since sold. I mean, so, you know, there's so many like layers to this where it just uh, is really heartbreaking to see so much money going into so few strategies that have so little chance of success while the issues that really matter, right? The, the people, I mean, and the animal suffering, like I, I'm not saying I don't care about that, but I'm saying we don't have the right strategies to fix that either, you know, and that it's the entire picture that is the problem yeah i i feel like kind of something you said earlier is the you know part of the root issue here is like reductionist versus a more holistic perspective right like if you from a justice perspective whether it's you know these environmental issues human rights issues animal rights if you pick one single thing above all else and ignore the big picture impact of that strategy or that thing you're focusing on or how you're studying it, you're going to miss that bigger impact. You're going to miss a more realistic picture of of what works, what doesn't, what's going to create change, the impact of the things totally. you're choosing to work and, on. Yeah, and I think and, that's yeah. uh, an argument that many in the sort of effective altruism cult uh, don't understand. Because I'll hear them say things, you know, I've had, you know, been on other podcasts who I've criticized this very, you know, hyper capitalistic strategy of biotech that, for example, GFI is, you know, huge proponent of biotech and, and uh, I am not. And I strongly object to that because it's simply not going to work to fix anything. And, you know, what they will say in response is, well, our focusing on this strategy doesn't stop you from focusing on your strategy, you know, and just because we're focusing on this doesn't mean you can't advocate for workers over there. And okay, so like you're saying, I mean, if you're missing the big picture, then you're 
not getting underneath the actual causes of the problem, for, first of all. Second of all, you know, it's very convenient to say, well, we can just work on our strategies when you're sitting on a budget of over $20 million, you know, while these other groups are barely scraping by. So, you know, um, to me, it's just, it's not okay to, um, to hoard so many resources and then, you know, put them into a very narrow band of thinking. And, you know, it also, I think about so many people whose bright minds are not being, you know, put to work, right? Because, and who come from different backgrounds, different experiences. I mean, I feel like there's a lack of understanding in the movement about why this concept of diversity is so important. And, you know, we see this, and of course this is true across corporate America, you know, that companies and organizations think that diversity is about just plucking people of color and, you know, placing them in board positions and, you know, various low level staff positions. Whereas that's really not, <laughs> it's really about bringing their experiences and thought processes. And, you know, obviously that's what the inclusion piece is about, but um, I, I don't, I think we're really missing out on so much when it comes to other types of strategies and, and diverse ways of thinking about problem solving and, um, when it comes to alleviating animal suffering. And that is um, really heartbreaking. It is. It's, it's it's sad. It's upsetting. And and the thing I'd add to what you said, too, when we, you know, approach things from a more reductionist lens or when a group like GFI says, well, you know, we're not stopping you from working on this. I think they also miss how the reductionist single-minded approach can actually exacerbate other aspects of the problem like with the the beef or the the chicken you know one step for animals or you know in the case of like all the biotech stuff one of my big complaints with that is that another issue i care about right from this holistic lens is like food justice and not having corporate control of our seed of our food supply patented seed pesticides which i used to think more vegans and animal rights activists also cared about, but feel like that's maybe not the case now. And when I see these biotech and lab-grown meat solutions being put forth, I see them as like a direct road to giving corporations more control no question. of our food. <laughs> I mean, that's the definition of it. And it's I like- mean, that's exactly what it's doing. It's creating more. Um, you know, intellectual property around food. I mean, it's just going in the polar opposite direction that we need to be going. And I mean, it's it's quite insane when you think about it. And, you know, they will say things like, well, but that's just your particular values. And if this is the way, you know, we can help animals, then, you know, so be it. And again, like, where's the proof that that is the way? I mean, it's again, like we could probably do a whole other hour on the yep. <laughs> ridiculous assumptions that go into the whole cell-based meat, you know, business model. But um, you're absolutely right. It just, it, it is putting more concentrated power into the hands of corporations, investors, which hasn't gone so well for us so far. You know, that's the thing. It's like, if I heard um, somebody from the Humane Society say once, again, in response to arguments I was making. Every problem that capitalism has solved, cap or sorry, he said, every problem that capitalism has created 
capitalism can solve. He actually, somebody who works for, you know, the largest animal rights organization in, in the United States, he said that. I mean, it's, it still sends chills down my spine. Show me where that way of thinking in any other aspect of society has been true, right? I mean, can you think of one? Like, how's climate going <laughs> with, you know, trying to capture carbon from the air and all this stupid high-tech stuff? That people are talking about not going so well you know having flash floods all over the world yep. heat waves that are insane etc so you know when i think about an issue like civil rights you know nobody said okay well we're just going to create some high-tech solutions <laughs> to give black people the vote like no uh, we had to organize right and there were some economic strategies in there right bus boycotts sure but never alone i mean you know what I think we've lost touch with is these very basic organizing <laughs> principles, like organizing in terms of like community organizing and um, mm -hmm. a deeper understanding of movement building, right? So, you know, the EA approach, the hyper-capitalistic approach of group like TFI is like the definition of top-down, right? I mean, it's not activism, it's just top-down, yep. you know, hyper-capitalism approach as opposed to grassroots, you know, building a movement. And yeah, that is way harder, takes longer, but the vegan movement has really never ever put significant effort and resources into building a movement from a political standpoint, right? Sure, they've done various grassroots campaigns. I'm not saying there's no grassroots campaigns out there and there have been some successes here and there, but you know, we have not seen a fundamental shift in the food supply because we have had a failure <laughs> to understand and to study how movements, you know, are built and then how they make change happen. And that's the harder work. Yeah, it's, um, I'm still, I'm almost done with, um, the book you recommended, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. I'm in the middle of <laughs> yeah. like five books, which is <laughs> maybe Always. more than that, which is why it's taken me so long. But um, but yeah, it, it I, I love some of the ideas presented in there and the idea of building movements and really grassroots organizing. And, and I 100% agree with you. We need Yes. I mean, if you look at that. the labor movement, I mean, that's really you know, what that's been built off of. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of exciting things happening. I mean, sadly, because workers have been so screwed over, um, there's finally, you know, the backlash. And even though unions have certainly taken a big hit over the last few decades, they're starting to come back, right? We're seeing some success already with unionization efforts at Amazon and now Starbucks. I mean, I don't know. I think that's pretty damn cool. And of course, you know, Amy's Kitchen trying to unionize, getting, um, you know, pushback, which they all will get pushback. But I feel like, you know, linking arms with these types of grassroots efforts could be an incredible opportunity for the vegan movement. And that's really, you know, where shifts start to happen when movements start to link arms. And I know it's hard. I'm not saying, you know, it's an easy thing, but it's just the only thing that ever really truly shifts society is that kind of grassroots effort. Yeah, I think. I mean, another thing you're you're mentioning there is the importance of studying history rather than trying to create these modeling and studies based on reductionist, you know, assumptions. Like, 
let's study history more. Let's actually look at past social movements, changes, like what has actually Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think history is, is a great teacher. And I mean, I've been blown away reading some of the, the history of the civil rights movement. And, you know, and, and you know, it's, um, again, it is, it's messy and complicated. And of course, you know, there's been all kinds of backlash and, and, you know, steps backwards um, in civil rights as well. But that's the point, like the fight continues and you have to stay with it. And, you know, to just be jumping from this strategy to that strategy and continue on this path of like, again, this top down approach when that's clearly not working. And why should we believe anyone who says, well, you know, we were wrong before, but believe us now um, is kind of crazy making, you know, it's like, well, let's look broader and let's bring in more diverse set of voices or less at least spread the money around you know i mean even if we're not all going to be in lockstep which you know pretty much impossible i acknowledge why should so few groups be getting all the funding that's what's so frustrating to me when there are you know potentially a wider variety of, of groups and individuals who um could be supported and just you know bring more interesting ideas to the table. Yeah, I'd love to see what kind of a movement that <laughs> creates. Right. And I mean, the truth is, if you think about just the shifting demographics, right, in this country alone, I mean, I don't know, I just, it's just, it sort of reminds me of like the GOP. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't hang on to the white male model forever, because like, the population is changing right before our eyes. And so kind of becoming irrelevant the more you you know the more these groups double down on like just these very few strategies that are led by white men it's like you know I just don't see that being a long-term strategy I mean I guess it'll be fine for the people who are getting money now but um in the long run it's going to turn off a lot of people yeah I I agree and I mean and one thing that reminds me of as we wrap up here then is um you know, even when we're talking about effective or history, the vegan or animal rights movement as a movement, as a collective, you know, political effort or social movement is extraordinarily new. You know, the word vegan was only coined in 1944, even. And that's not to say like the ideas obviously have been around a lot longer. And the ideas come from way more diverse, non-white backgrounds, cultures, you know, we see that there are statistics today that veganism and plant-based diets are growing much faster in black communities than in white. And yet, so, so we have this newer movement that is the, the, the organizations and the funding sources, they're all predominantly white male when the actual people that represent these ideas, the places they came from are very much the opposite of that. Totally. And I think that's actually a positive note to end on. Right. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, regardless of what the cult is going to do, which, you know, they're just going to hang on to power for as long as they possibly can. Um, the rest of the you know country and world is going to continue to, you know, build their own movements and obviously shift their diets in the way that makes sense. And like I say, I mean, many cultures are already basing their diets on, you know, whole foods and plant based 
uh, you know, beans and rice has been around forever, right? So, you know, the, the cultural aspect of these, of eating this way runs very deep. And there are plenty of people out there that are discovering it even for the first time. And, you know, and that's going to continue. And that's a, a beautiful thing that there are plenty of people that are like, don't even, never heard of GFI, certainly have never heard of effective altruism, and hopefully they never will. They're just going to keep doing their thing in their communities and, and you know, um, building in their own ways. And I'm all for that. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would like to add? I just uh, really want to thank you for the opportunity to have this kind of, you know, deeper discussion, because sadly, there aren't enough platforms for it. You know, there's way more echo chamber podcasts and, you know, outlets out there. So I'm just really grateful for you and your voice. And, you know, I think the more that we can bring these sorts of conversations forward, the more we can bring, you know, other diverse voices to the table, um, the better we will all be. So I appreciate Thank you for all you are doing to speak out about this. So where can people go to follow you, find out more about your work, get and, you know, support you? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. So my website is um, Michelle R. Simon, and I spell Michelle with one L. So michellersimon.com. And I have, you know, all my writing, my recent writing up there um, about many of the issues that we discussed. And there's more to come. Got a book chapter coming out. I think it's next year in an entire book um, critique about effective altruism. That will be very interesting. And um, and some other things coming. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, Michelle R. Simon, and LinkedIn. Although at the moment, I have been put into LinkedIn jail. <laughs> um, uh, possibly because of the article I wrote, I mentioned earlier uh, at Forbes about Amy's Kitchen labor abuses. I don't know for sure, but it seems rather coincidental that the day that I post this article, um, LinkedIn, uh, this, uh, you know, suspended my account. Um, hopefully it'll be resolved um, by the time this airs. But, you know, if I'm not there, find me on Twitter and I'll, you know, and you can also email me through my website. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm so honored to have you on for this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from. 